Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I hope you would live your life better than the way I've always tried to live mine. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your Josh Goggin fanatic and Religionless Church host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Jamie Lee Finch. Jamie is a relationship coach between humans and their bodies. She is also a writer and a disappointer of moms everywhere. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Kayak. Kayak is an indie band from Chicago, Illinois. You can get connected with both Jamie and Kayak and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is to become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. How he saw his daughter running past the tombstones of others. How he went to take her picture and saw the grave of a stranger. That read it's all a mystery, life is all a mystery. And I thought it meant nothing to the dead or the living. How your heart is a rudder. Through a river and ending And when I thought to say something I'd hoped I'd say nothing A seal with no condition Withheld beyond our vision And I thought it meant nothing To the dead or the living How it all feels like a mystery Life is all a mystery Today we have Jamie Lee Finch, and uh, Jamie, you do lots of things in the world, including uh, being a therapist, you are a poet, uh, you're a disappointer of moms, <laughs> uh, you do lots of things, including all those three things, uh, but as I always ask every guest, Jamie, who is Jamie Lee Finch to Jamie Lee Finch? Oh my God. What a question. Um, I don't know. I think I might have to steal disappointer of moms because that's like put in that form. Like I know that that's the thing I do. I'm aware I've had like <laughs> men that I've dated tell me they would never introduce me to their mothers for that reason. Oh, wow. I know it's, it's their deal, not mine. Um, 
Wow, who am I? Um, you're also a disappointer of Masons. I will say a few months back, you told me you're not actually Wiccan, which really disappointed oh, me. Yeah. I was really hoping you were Wiccan. No, I'm not. And there's there's reasons for that. It's because I don't I am not interested in ever being a part of any sort of organized religious practice ever again. Um, the beautiful thing about witchcraft is that you have full permission to do that mm -hmm. because it's an autonomous, um, personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and, but, but Wiccan is an actual like religion. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. And I, I thought about it for a bit, but I just, my whole body was like, I don't want to go down that road of something that is that organized anymore. Um, also I, I will say too, I'm actually not a therapist, but I am a coach. Like, oh, so you, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, who am I? Who, who am I to me? Um, you know, I feel like probably like the answer that comes up in my consciousness, um, which may or may not make sense to anyone else is just like, I am my body. And I feel like what that means to me, even if it might sound like a really confusing thing to other people. And I do think that there are people who have done a lot of work to say that I am not my body or I am more mm. than just my body, which that's all valid too. But for me, I feel like my personal work in my relationship to and with myself that then my professional work is like built upon is this idea that being in connection with your body and having this beautiful solid um fluent friendship relationship with your body is possible mm. um even though there's lots of things like a lot of authoritarian religion um and western medicine in some cases mm -hmm. and capitalism just itself tells you like no that's not possible or no you shouldn't want that because your body's an enemy so when i think about the thing that defines me most or jamie lee finch defining jamie lee finch is my, my body like her mm -hmm. Um, her, that is also me. And I think this is something I talk about with my clients a lot, or I had one client say it to me once, and then I've had a few other clients kind of affirm that this is true. Um, that you don't, you can't really make sense of what I do unless you've done it with me. So like the, mm. what I do in my coaching space, like doesn't really make any sense or like half the things I say, like either on the internet or in interviews or just in regular daily life, like doesn't make any fucking sense mm -hmm. unless you've actually kind of hopped into the paradigm that exists in the container that I'm holding in my coaching work. Um, so I'm fully aware that most of what I just said now, like isn't going <laughs> to make any sense, but all my clients, like previous clients are going to be like, I get it. I know what you mean. Me too. Let's talk about your book. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us about the story that led you to write. You are your own. Wow. Trauma, Mason. Mm. Trauma. Um, trauma combined with um, school. So I, I, I spent a lot of years, I deferred higher education, essentially, um, mm. to do ministry, as did many of us. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, when I um, left evangelical Christianity, the ministry thing wasn't really an option anymore. So I was like, well, I guess, well, I, I did first, I got my coaching certification. And then my coaching certification program has a partnership with this, uh, with a school in Vermont called Goddard college and mm. Goddard has Goddard is incredible. Um, they have a very progressive educational model where mm. you are essentially building your own curriculum inside, like under the umbrella of approved degree criteria, mm. but it functions like a PhD program because you're working one-on-one -on -one directly with an advisor. So there's no classes, not, there's no like online classes or anything. You're sending in packets of work, but it's packets of work that's based on what you've decided to study that wow. your advisor has approved. It's very, very cool. A lot of people decide to go to Goddard because they think it sounds easier and then they drop out after the first semester because it's really fucking hard. Yeah. Because um, you have to be really clear on what you want to contribute mm -hmm. to the world. You're not just, you know, showing up to class and taking tests and, and graduating. So I show up to Goddard. I'm not super clear. I thought I wanted to be a naturopathic doctor, like a naturopathic practitioner, which still is like, not that surprised, it's very body-based. But, and I write about this in the introduction of the book. One of the most important things I think that, that has ever happened to me in my life is that in one of the um, kind of new student orientations when I first got to Goddard in August of 2016, um, one of the things that I remember one of the um, faculty saying in this new student orientation was, you know, you, yes, you are here to study something, 
Um, but the way that that kind of like fits into your life needs to matter too. So Mm. let's maybe, so like pay attention less to the conversations you're having with your advisor, the conversations you're having with other faculty, as far as, you know, trying to figure out what you're here to do and what you're here to build and study, pay more attention to the conversations you're having around the dinner table. Cause you go, you basically, you study from anywhere. Um, but you go up for a week, a week long residency at Vermont. So it's, um, a low residency program. Mm-hmm. So you go up for a week, build your curriculum, you go back to where you live and you do your work for four months. Mm-hmm. So we're all there for a week all together. And so they're like, you're going to be like living and eating and, you know, getting to know each other fucking maybe. Yeah. Um, so pay more attention to what's happening in those conversations with your peers and your fellow students. And this, this faculty member specifically said, pay attention to what it is that you're saying when the person you're talking to leans in, like literally physically leans in to what mm. you're saying, because that, regardless of what you think you're here to study, that's what you're here to study. And what was so fascinating to me, which I don't know who to attribute this to God or whoever, but what was fascinating to me is my, my group that I was there with all the new students in that group, there was a surprising number of former evangelical people who had left. And when I started talking about the stuff that was most interesting to me, like, um, you know, the, the, the patterns that I felt like I was seeing in my health coaching clients that I was seeing, where mm-hmm. it was like, there was a connection between if you were raised with purity culture and the presence of autoimmune disease in your body, like with the women I was working with. So I started talking about that. And then the way I would talk about no, you know, the damage, like being taught that there's a hell or taught that you're have a sin nature, or, you know, you're not allowed to get in touch with your sexuality until you enter into a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Like there's a psychological impact there and that creates trauma. And like, I'm just talking about this stuff without even really knowing how to talk about it. Mm. And everyone was leaning in and saying like, I've never thought about it that way before. Or that's so interesting. Like you just gave language for this thing I didn't even know was going on. So I scrapped my initial um, study plan because I was going to like study like Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine. I like fucking scrapped it. My first paper that semester was on the link between purity culture and autoimmune disease and um, other forms, autoimmune disease, chronic illness, digestive issues, all that stuff. Because it was like, if you Google that, nothing exists. Like no one studied this, but I'm like, water is the safest place to start academically like researching that and just create that for yourself. So that's what started me on it. I had a year of just doing work like that. And then your second to last year, because I had three years to do at Goddard. So my second year there, you start doing kind of the preliminary stuff for your senior study. And then your final year there, senior year, is writing that long form thesis. Um, Essentially, it kind of breaks down a little bit Mm -hmm. differently than that. So I had two and a half years where there was a, and I took an extra semester, but um, I just gave you that timeline wrong. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Essentially, two and a half total years. I've had some wine, two and a half total years, um, where the first year was just kind of letting myself run free with like, I see this connection. I'm gonna write a paper about that. And then, you know, the next year and a half doing the specific research and writing of that, of looking into what religious trauma syndrome is and what the impact, what the impact is that it creates in the brains and the bodies of the people who have experienced it. They're tearing down trees night and day with the promise of great mighty walls to come they're scraping out all of the shade but then crawling away when their towers fall far below there isn't an anchor or slave not an ocean or grave nowhere to bury the pain but you seek nothing else despite all our wanting your knife stays on your belt and your words are dishonest. You seek so on top of all the research you did, though, uh, You Are Your Own is still a very deeply personal book. What did you learn about yourself while writing? Oh, my God. Literally so much because I, I went to my dad's and just got a bunch of boxes of all the weird shit that he and my mother had decided to keep, like, like art projects from my preschool classes. Like that's weird. But among all that gross shit was 10 years of my own personal documentation 
of like, not just journal entries and poems I had written, but like notes that like middle school and high school friends, like, you know, when we used to pass notes before phones were a thing and you would text your friend or you'd like fold them up really cool. I saved all of those. I have Mm. no idea why. And, but I went to a Christian school and all of my friends were either in my Christian school or in my church. So everything had some sort of like religious theme to it. I had six boxes of stuff I brought back from my dad's. And a lot of this was stuff I had forgotten, like, like pictures of myself for like, you know, little Sunday school curriculum that I did when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, I, you know, tons of journals and diaries of the way that I was, ways that I was like writing about myself and writing about what I believed about God in the world from my teenage years. And then I even also had a box or two, or maybe part a box and a part of a box of stuff from like, after I graduated high school, I went to Africa with an organization and I had a bunch of journaling stuff from there. And then the time when I was in Thailand, I had a whole book that a friend had made for me, like it's like a handmade book and I journaled in there. So I had stuff um, throughout my twenties and as well. And then when I moved to Tennessee to do that, like charismatic Christian ministry school, I had all the notes that I took for all of those classes, like classes, and then also my own personal journaling that I did. So I had When I say I literally learned so much about myself, like there was so much I'd forgotten that I'd believed or so much that I'd forgotten that I had written. And so I was doing this like self excavation and I have this picture on my phone. I I don't think I ever posted it anywhere, but when I brought all those boxes back and I started going through them, I put my whole writing process on pause and for about two and a half weeks just to like dig through everything, but not just dig through it from an, an academic perspective, but like dig through it read this stuff and emotionally connect with it. And I basically, I spent like two weeks pretty much just crying over like, I was so up, like emotionally distraught over what tiny me was required to believe about herself. Mm. And I feel like when I got to the end of that experience, it was so cathartic and so heavy and so hard, but the felt sense that I had in my body when I, you know, when I think about that, it felt like a really an important like delineation in the writing I was doing before and the writing I was doing after that point is it felt like I took her with me because it felt like the writing I was doing before. And I was trying to write this book without her, without that younger me that really needs to be heard and needed like her part of the story to be told in this, but she was hard to find, you know, and she's, that's scary to, to dig around in that. And I remember during my preliminary um, research and writing my, my second reader, because I have a main advisor and a second reader mm-hmm. kept telling me over week after week, this is all, this is interesting research. This is all interesting stuff you have here. You have to tell your story. There's your story isn't here. I was like dissecting the history of a belief in hell. And I waxed on for like 20 pages about how shitty St. Augustine is. And like my advisor was like, but where? And I knew I was resisting it because I knew that would be really painful. And it was, it was actually more painful than I even thought it would be once I got back and went to my dad's and got all those like literal Mm. pieces that I, you know, you can't deny what was happening then when you're looking at it in the face. So it was more painful. It was totally worth it. And this work, this like book, this thesis would never have existed had I not gone to do that because it wouldn't have been the right thing at all. Mm. And I also, it would have kind of broken my heart on some level because I would not, I would not have taken that younger me that needed her story told with me in, accom- mm-hmm. in accomplishing this thing. And I'm really glad I decided to do that after all. I, mm-hmm. I downsized, I threw away the contents, cumulative contents of four of those six boxes and I only kept two and they're all in my closet over there now so <laughs> I can revisit her anytime I want. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. What a, what a way to like relate to a past self. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah. Uh, what's something that maybe you unexpectedly learned while you were writing the book that you had no idea you would learn and then boom, there it was. I did not expect that I would learn and have tangible proof of just how much these like white old evangelical men lied about the extent of their impact upon the world. I didn't realize it like I because growing up inside of that tiny little bubble, which I mean, it feels big when you're in it. It is kind of big. There's millions of people have been affected by this, but Mm -hmm. like in the grand scheme of things, yeah, it's tiny. But 
when you're in it, it feels so big. And the way that they describe themselves and the way that they describe the ways that they're changing the world and the impact they're creating, like whether it's, you know, James Dobson or Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, like they have these grandiose, like views of themselves. That's just their, these inflated egos. Mm-hmm. And I, and I feel like I inherited these, the, the mythology of like how important these men were to the whole world, to like the way that presidential elections went or, and like, it's wow. not that they didn't have impact. They did, but their, the, their level of self-importance and the way that they were talked about that self-importance was regurgitated from not just the radio my dad listened to or the way my pastor was speaking from the pulpit, but just like even on down to like, um, the stuff that occurred in my school, the way my teachers were talking about, like the influence that these men had. I read one of the most important sources for my book was this book called The Evangelicals um, by Francis Fitzgerald. It's like 700 fucking pages. I clearly did not read through the whole thing. I just, I cherry picked some chapters that I knew would be applicable. But it was in reading through those chapters that I was like, this, these are the actual facts, unbiased information their world was so much smaller than they were trying to make everybody Mm. think it was. So I really, I was shocked and it was really, I think that was really helpful um, because I think I still had this idea that I was up against this huge monster. And I, I mean, I'll compare it to, you know, the wizard of Oz. I think I thought I was up against something that appeared or was this like giant wizard, this giant force to be reckoned with. And then the more research I did, I'm like, you guys don't even believe you're that powerful. That's why you project this much. Mm. That's why you're this fucking scared, which is arguably maybe why my Instagram got shut down because actually (laughs) you guys are scared. Like you're small and you're scared and you're losing Mm. your people. Cause I think somewhere deep down, you realize what you're doing isn't working. So you have to really, really pretend like Mm. it is because really you're just the tiny man behind the curtain. And I think there is something about recognizing that at some point during that year and a half of my writing that I was like, like this, like peace kind of like entered into my body. I was like, Oh Mm. no, you guys really aren't. I still think you're full of shit, but I, I'm not, I'm not afraid of you anymore in the way that Mm. I, I was a little bit of like coming up against this huge machine. I was like, not a huge machine. Yeah. That, that, that's such an interesting story. Can I share a story that sort of relates and ties into that? So yeah. I, um, it, it ties into thinking uh, when you're in that world, you think that that is the world. Like, mm-hmm. right? like they're able to, per- um, they're able to present this type of world where those who are in it think it's literally the only world. And yes. in fourth grade, so here I am 10 years old and I've been enculturated in the evangelical world quite a bit. And there was this one moment where I had a, a friend who wasn't even like that close of a friend in fourth grade, but I knew that he was going through like some family issues. Mm. And so one time during recess, and I had no, I, I had no other idea of how to do this, but at recess, I'm like, let's sit down um, and let's talk about this. And I told him straight to his face, I'm Dr. James Dobson, and you're my patient, and we're going to talk about this. And I remember, like, like I was, it wasn't like a little five-year-old playing, you know, like, house or whatever. I was playing Dr. James Doctor. Dobson I was as a 10-year-old. Psychologist. Yes. Wow. To help my friend through his family issues. And so, like, right, like, that, I think, highlights how much they're able to create this environment where those who are in it think it's literally the only environment okay. that exists. That was the only name you had for like, like for context of like someone who helps someone or someone who leads people to like through some pain to a truth within themselves. It's just this guy. Yeah, that is that this, one guy. Really that's old dude. Crazy. Oh my God. That's actually, it's kind of adorable. Too. It you're really like, is yeah. adorable. But you're doing the best you could. You really wanted to help. I know. Just, yeah. The strain of a nation too late in attention too great. What we'd give at the cost of our spines It felt like the road was in vain When we fell to the fray So we lifted our eyes from the tide There isn't an anchor, a slave Not an ocean, a grave Nowhere to bury the shame But you seek something else Despite all We have the members of Kayak, David and... Erica 
and David and Erica are, can you share what your, I mean, I think I heard your vocals, David, and I think I heard your vocals a little bit, Erica, Um, but do you want to maybe mention to the people who are listening what instruments you might play too? Sure. Yeah, so um, I uh, I generally just play um, acoustic guitar um, in live settings and then on on a recording i i do a little bit of electric but a lot of synth stuff as well Mm -hmm. um yeah and then erica you can (laughs) yeah and i play electric guitar and do vocals as well wonderful uh, we have some other band members that that play with us live and have helped with recordings um we have our 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 good friend dave has recorded our albums um Mm. and he plays a a lot of percussion, does drums live, and our buddy Caleb does bass and moog, a lot of the, just all the low-end stuff, and mm-hmm. then we got a friend, Eric, who's like the, what, whatever we need him to do, if mm. it's to bang on a pot or something, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those guys. That's great. Oh, one of the things I really noticed uh, when I initially listened was how eclectic your music is. There's just a lot of different things going on, just a spanning of genres, something I really noticed. Uh, one of the questions I had was you released your, your newest album in 2018. W- what were some of the maybe musical inspirations that maybe you two were listening to as songwriters and maybe some of the other uh, m- members in the band that were, what were you all listening to that maybe uh, directed or influenced the sound of that, that last album? Yeah, good question. Um... You got any? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think uh, I listen to a lot of old country, which um, is quite different from the sounds that Kayak makes. Mm. Um, But uh, I also listen to, we both enjoy really listening to a lot of ambient music. Um, Mm. I think that kind of informs a lot of the spacey sounds that you hear throughout Mm -hmm. the music. Um, and kind of this background of a drone that goes on um, that we both really enjoy. So that um, kind of manifests manifests itself a lot in our music. Yeah. Um, I I really like um, a lot of Sun Kill Moon as well, uh, hmm. Mark Pozlik. So um, some of his albums where he's, you know, playing guitar, like nylon string guitar, um, which is generally what I play as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I've been listening to a lot of that for a while now. And I think that, I think at the time I was like, as I was writing, I was getting back into, he's got this album called Benji that came out in 2014. And it's like, hmm. yeah, I think I always, I always go, that's one of my favorite records. I always go back to that. So I, I'm sure that that's influenced mm-hmm. you know, this record's creation mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah, we both really love the National as well. And oh yeah, I've hitchhiked to see the National. Oh, oh man, nice. that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> to, to see, I saw them in Red Rocks once, and yeah, I hitchhiked to see to see oh, them. Oh my gosh, that sounds like it awesome. would be an amazing experience. Last, it was quite surreal. We saw them at a Eau Claire festival. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of somewhat in my neck of the woods. I live in yeah, Minneapolis. We're exactly. close-ish. Close-ish. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, we like Minneapolis a lot. Yeah, in fact, the Nationals playing at um, Rock the Garden this this year, which is where like um, Bon Iver would play a lot of like Rock the Garden, and so. Yeah. But this year, it's it's the National. Yeah, awesome. man, they're so good. Yeah. Every time we've seen them live, yeah. it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So I think that also informs a lot of what we write and kind of the mm. style, too, like yeah, this yeah. deeply personal album that um, has a lot of different things going on instrumentation wise. Mm. What what about maybe maybe there's poetry that you like reading? Maybe there's books that you like reading. Is there any literature in particular that seemed to be of influence in this last album? Yeah, I Erica bought me um, a book, uh, John Muir's Journals, okay. and uh, I I feel like there's some writings that are like so rich that. I read like a chapter and I'm just like, I'm the biggest fan of this. And I know, and it's like, it's almost like I feel so full just reading a little bit of like his writings and his journals that like, I haven't even finished the book because I just walk (laughs) away acting like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I have to tell everyone just about these 
five pages I've read <laughs> instead of actually getting back and like seeing on reading it. But I, I would say like a lot of writings, yeah, just a John Muir, but also just writings that, that people have said about kind of nature. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples. I don't know. You got any? Yeah, I don't think I have any like literature that was informing my my writing or influenced my writing but sure. yeah but I mean I think Nate you mentioned nature that's a big influence for both of us mm-hmm. is um, that maybe where kayak the, like just even the band name came from yeah yeah, yeah so that was oh well they, there's some there's a little story with that too involving literature um but so I I, I like the actual activity of kayaking mm-hmm. and I was um my parents have a, a place up in Wisconsin um by the lake and I would take kayaks out in the water when the water is really still. And just like, that was kind of just a spiritual time for myself. And I started reading about, um, so like I was, I was doing that. And then I was reading all these old, uh, just books about like, uh, native American and like the American Indians and, you know, North America and some of the, also some like Inuit travel to Greenland. Hmm. And that's when it, in the book, it started showing the word kayak, the way we spell it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was talking about for a few pages. And so I like had to look <laughs> it up and I was like, learned about that version. And I just was really just kind of obsessed with that word and just how like, I love kayaking as well. And like this weird, um, create, you know, this weird connection. I felt like I had to, I don't know, that activity and, and, mm. Um, I, it's, it's kind of hard to explain or when I try to, when I try to like verbalize it out loud, it sounds so silly, but just how someone created this vessel, uh, this culture created this vessel. And now today we, you know, some would argue we've kind of co-opted a lot of those things, but like Mm. it has activities and somehow it still has spiritual or it finds there's, we find spiritual significance from the activity itself. Mm. I don't know. It's kind of goofy, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just, I, I've read a lot of just, uh, books about kind of, um, just like, yeah, native peoples, like migrations throughout North America. Mm. Kind of, it's it's very interesting to me. Might not be interesting, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What, what are, uh, some maybe eventual tours or shows or even other projects and albums even that you might be working on uh, that you're looking forward to in the future? Yeah, so we um, we actually spent a little over a year touring full-time uh, okay. last year and got to travel across the U.S. and played a ton of shows, got to meet a lot of people, um, and we love that. And so now we're kind of in a phase of life where we are not touring as much, but we're playing local shows. We're from Chicago. Mm. Um, so we play shows around here when we can. Um, and then we're working on the next kayak album. So we'll work on recording that in the next year or so, and then releasing be, it. Yeah. The plan for that one, it's going to be 2019. It's, um, I, I kind of have like a lot of the songs are, I'm kind of holding them in right now. It's like the, I'm holding, the faucet's <laughs> ready to get turned on. I'm kind of, and so I'm, planning a time to just kind of let it go record everything not not too quickly but just kind of begin to just like hammer out everything and just kind of get it done because it the last two albums we've done have been over long periods of time we've just kept coming back and this one I really want to try to get down whatever is feels natural and go on the instinct so the idea is definitely 2019 that Mm. this yeah we'll have the next album so yeah yeah it's ambitious, but uh, I, I really hope that it comes out. That <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so thank you again. Um, before I ask, or before we, we depart here, um, where can people find you? Where can they find your music? How can they get connected to you? Yeah, so we're on all the usual internet places. Uh, if you just search for the word kayak, spelled Q-A-J-A-Q, um usually kayak music or kayak band um you'll be able to find us it's a pretty unique spelling mm-hmm. so that helps on that end that's great well thank you so much for for chatting with me uh i i've really enjoyed the music uh i i love like a good um 
I, I'm, I don't really necessarily listen to a lot of like solo singer songwriters, but when like you have a combination of a band, especially when when, uh, you know, when those people are really close friends, even. And I just love like sort of the the vibrancy that you can hear in in one's music when you have people who are just really good friends that are they're playing yeah. music together that they love and and then bringing all the different kind of music that they love and bringing that in together into one band. And uh, so and you can really hear that in your music. Cool. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, Mason. I appreciate cool. that so much. Yeah, we. I started listening to the podcast, by the way, and it's yeah, I'm, I'm really into it. So I'm like, thank you. So to like have a new, you know, podcast to be into. So thank you so much okay. for having. Yeah, thank you. When I was younger, and I would feel anger, I could never question through my reddest of tempers, like your mother's red sweater. Vision with honest aggression, but love wasn't absent, and my sisters would warn me the world is deceiving, how men are misleading. But you're like a sonnet, it's in your delivery, it's your pattern of breathing. One of the things I've really noticed about you is a lot of your pictures, even including the one on your book cover, include some sort of touch. So whether it's you touching yourself in some way or you touching another person or you and another person touching each other in some way. Mm. Um, But there's there's this kind of theme of touch in a lot of the visual images that, you know, whether it's for your book or for other visual images that you have. Um, How does touch play into the healing from trauma? (laughs) That is an enormously wonderful question. And I also did not even realize that until you just said it. And I'm like, is this sort of accurate? I mean, it's sort of what I've got. It's incredibly accurate, but I, I love it's. I can't wait. I'm like, I can't wait to give you my answer, but I'm like, just then give them the fucking answer, which is, (laughs) um, okay. So when I first started studying all this and I like wrote that fucking paper, um, about purity culture and autoimmune disease, um, which is right around election season. So election time 2016 so many of us were turning in our shit late because we could not get out of bed and luckily mm-hmm. goddard is super progressive and they're like we get it we can't get out of bed either it's fine take your time but it was that that time what was going on with that coupled with what i was studying i was enormously triggered in ways i didn't even know were possible mm-hmm. and so i hopped into trauma therapy for the very first time and a couple months into um setting a good solid foundation of talk therapy which have this one for free guys. If you ever start working with someone who is trained in trauma therapy and they don't do a, a good foundation of just talk therapy first, don't keep going to that person. Mm. That's real dangerous. Um, so after doing a few, a few weeks, um, actually a couple months of talk therapy and then setting up to do like the really intense EMDR process, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's, it's very successful trauma therapy. Um, I remember the first I did my first EMDR session and I, what, how I did them with my therapist was we did two hours at a time because you have to kind of like set up a foundation of where you're going to go and then like kind of get into it. And then you're up here and you're in it and then you have to deescalate. Um, mm. and so sometimes an hour isn't enough. So we would just use a block of two hours. I remember experiencing the breakthroughs of what I experienced and this reconnection with myself and this recovery from these things that I, the way that I was feeling. And and I'll pause here and give you some context. My most of my life up to this point, I because touch was something that was really unsafe in my childhood, mm. um, because of both being spanked and then also having an abusive mother that did the spanking, but then also was abusive in other ways, and then never really feeling safe. I mean, my elementary school that I went to for Christian school, I was there for like a year. Um, they the I mean, principal spanked students, like spanked Mm. the kids they were allowed to. So that already wasn't safe. But then just, I just, I touch never felt safe for me is what Mm. I'm saying. And it was the thing that I had always really felt really insecure about. And because a lot of, I was like, yes, I recognize my, my best friend is a safe person. And yet I'm still go so rigid when I hug her and like, it's really hard. So I have this two hour long EMDR session and it's, I have all these breakthroughs and, um, I'm leaving the office and I'm starting to drive home, like from a certain part in Nashville over to East Nashville. And where I lived at the time was just like a couple streets away from where my best friend lived at the time, which is like the house I had actually previously lived in. 
And my every, I was like, the idea of just driving to my house and just going home was like so unfathomable. I needed to go to her house. I had mm. to see it because everything in me was like, I have to hug her. Mm. So I drove over there and it wasn't until I was there that I texted her and I was like, are you awake? Cause it was like 10 in the morning. So we started <laughs> really early. I was like, are you even here? Are you awake? And she was like, I'm here. I'm awake. And I was like, okay, I'm outside. Like nothing's wrong. I just really, I just really need to see you. And she's like, okay. So she opens the door and I just, I grab, I grab her and I hug her. Um, and, and she, like, we both just started crying because it was just mm. this, like, like something happened, something changed. And from that point on, so this was early 2017, um, from that point on for the last like two plus years, it's been something that has been become safer and safer and safer and safer. And I see now that the development, the, the increase in my ability to like touch and experience safe touch has run exactly parallel with my, with my trauma healing, my healing trauma, both, you know, parental family trauma, but also the religious trauma as well. Mm. Because when it, I mean, regardless of where your trauma comes from, if you don't feel safe in the world, like you're not going to feel safe. And there's a re there's good reason for that. You're not going to feel safe, like making yourself so vulnerable and exposed to literally touch and hold another person or to be touched and held by another person. Um, so the reason why I love that you asked this and I love being able to give this answer is because I know where that shift started to happen for me. Mm. And I love that that shift happened so much that it's something that you notice mm. because my, my best friend like a year later down the road, one, t- one night we were out with other people and she was observing me in the room. And she told me later that she was like, I was watching you touch people. And I was watching you like hug people. And she was like, I'd never seen that. And she's like, it's so clear to me how different not, not different you are, but like how different this is for you now. Mm. And what a testament that is to like the work you've done. And is she just, I mean, it's been this thing that I'm kind of continually astounded by and she's astounded by and people who Mm. know me really well, who've known me for a while. are like, that's a thing you do now. You touch people now. (laughs) Like I've, I've hugged friends of mine who are like, you're hugging me. And I'm like, I know it's so easy now. Um, so yeah, I love, I love that because I love that you noticed that and that feels really validating. Mm. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. One of the most influential theologies for me is called theopoetics, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that? it. Nope, yeah, not at all. so it takes embodiment as the source of theological reflection. Mm. And I know a lot of your work deals with embodiment, as we've been talking about. Yeah. So how has your own embodiment or friending your body, as you may call it, uh, influenced your own particular theology, even if you would even use that word theology? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think the best way I could probably describe that is to kind of steal some language from one of the things one of my clients said to me about a week ago in a session where she was saying, so I think, I think that a lot of people, a lot of evangelicals in particular would be shocked and appalled possibly by the amount of people that I've worked with. I mean, I give a certain, I appear a certain way on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and very eight wing seven way very eight <laughs> yes exactly and very like i don't believe it like don't that's why i'm not a wiccan like i, do, I don't connect with an identification of a religious belief and that that's important for me for a number of reasons to posture myself that way not only because it's true but also i mean i have i need people to feel safe enough to come to me and if i identify in a specific way like i there i run the risk of people thinking, "Mm, then I I might Mm. not be able Mm. to go. And I don't want anyone to feel that way. Um, But I think evangelicals would be shocked by the amount of people that I work with that in the space that I hold in my coaching work, they enter into it and they're like, I don't believe anything. I don't want to believe anything. And I don't even do, I don't do this, but like their bodies do this where I'm holding the space for them to reconnect with their bodies. And their bodies are like, we believe, by the way, we believe in some of this still or like, we still like, we still love Jesus, or we still believe that there is like the divine is a thing, mm. or there's like a benevolent force in the universe of some kind. Um, the amount of people who are like, I've returned back to something within myself at the end of that process. And I was like, that, I did not intend that at all, but it's mm. interesting. So this client said something last week about how she, she didn't anticipate that that would happen when we first started working together five, six months ago. 
she definitely thought she was like done and dusted. And now she's feeling like her body is bringing her back to this like recognition of God is safe again. Like just the idea of like God being there, God existing is safe again. And what she said was something to the effect of, because I know now what I, what I know that I feel and know now is that any God worth believing in, in the first place would never ask me to choose them over my body. Mm. Would never ask me to choose them over myself. And then we took it one step further, further and this is very Michael Gungry, which is like, mm-hmm. well, because arguably that God is yourself, that God is your body. So there's no competition there in the first place. So I think if there's any theology that I would have, um, I mean, there's a reason why throughout my book, like, and even in, my, in, in the academic format of my thesis, there's a reason why the word God is lowercase and the word she, when referring to my body, has a capital S. Mm-hmm. Like that's my, that's, that's my theology, which is mm. she exists, she is here, she's the most important relationship I will ever be in. Same thing for every individual person that has ever existed. But also, you're not even an individual person because if that's true for me and that's true for you, like that's true for all of us. So like it's the, it, it, again, read Michael Gunger's book at this point is what I should say. Like, because that's where it starts to get into like, there is no individual self, like, and there is no God that is separate from anything. Like God is my body and my body is God. And the only God that I couldn't possibly believe in would be a God that someone, any God that someone would tell me is separate from who, who I am or who you are, whoever, whoever you, whatever the you is. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I know that my theology includes the existence of an importance of my literal physical body, mm-hmm. which was not a thing that existed in my previous theological experiences. Um, and I also know that I'm not really concerned about having any kind of name for it. Um, so I think that's, that's about, that's about as much as I know or don't know. Who knows? I might not even know that. I could wake up tomorrow and be like, no. So, I don't know. I just, I'm enjoying the mystery, but I know that there is something very powerful in my connection with my body and my connection with myself. And in the space that I hold in my coaching work, I see that powerful connection um, grow and blossom with the people I work with. So I'm like, if I believe in anything, I, I have to believe in that. My second to last question is, uh, how can listeners get connected with you and your work? That is a fun question these days. Um, <laughs> the easiest answer to that for sure is Twitter. Um, I care more about Twitter than any of the other social media things. And I say and I care some more people about in Twitter. Your life probably too. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> I also care about Twitter more than most human beings I know. Um, so Twitter's easiest, just at Jamie Lee Finch. Um, Facebook, I have a personal, I'm not really active on Facebook at all. I exist on there, but I I have a personal page. I don't really use, but I have like a personal profile, but I have a professional page, um, that previously all I was using it for was to send the stuff I was posting on Instagram through Mm. to Facebook. Um, but it's facebook.com slash Jamie Lee Finch poet. And that's the page that you can like and follow. Mm. Um, and then as we all know, or maybe we don't all know at this point, but, um, when, around the time that I released this book or was about to officially announce mm-hmm. that I had released it and created it. But prior to that, I was just reposting other people, finding it and reading it and enjoying it on, I was reposting it on my Instagram. Um, my Instagram got disabled and I got kicked off. And I got kicked off because evangelical Christians decided that my book was hate speech. So mm. I did, did some hate speech, I guess, and then got kicked. Um, although all the white supremacists still get to like hang out 
all together on the internet. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't really know what to do about that. I created an alternative, like backup Instagram, which is at I am Jamie Lee Finch instead of just Jamie Lee Finch. Mm. Um, right like now it has- Like I am second? <laughs> Here's the thing. I, it's just because that's what my email had to be. Although I don't know if I want everyone knowing my email. It doesn't fucking matter. I just won't reply. I create boundaries. <laughs> Um, but back when I needed to create a new email from instead of an old nonprofit I used to work for, just Jamie Lee Finch at Gmail was taken. Whoever the fuck you are, give it to me. Um, so I had to just, I was like, I don't want to put numbers in there. I think that's just weird. So I just, I did, I am Jamie Lee Finch at gmail.com. Have fun, everyone. Um, and so I was like, fine, that's what I'll do for Instagram too. But it, I have nothing on it right now. Mm-hmm. I haven't posted it because I'm, I hate Instagram and I'm exhausted of it. And the worst thing in the world about my other one getting disabled is that I can't just like coast. I posted once a month on that thing. I did not give a shit. And now in order to like have to do work in the world and like be a coach and release a book, Mm -hmm. you have to like have a presence on that stupid fucking app. So now I have to care about that stupid fucking app. And every time I think about posting something and caring, all the energy just like drains from my body. Um, so maybe at some point in the next couple of weeks, I will start caring and maybe ask other people to care <laughs> and follow it. And, or I may really try and put in some kind of effort in recovering my old one. A lot of people I've talked to seem to think it's possible. I just, again, that requires me to stare at my phone so often or so long about a specific thing. And I really don't want to do that. But, um, like I said before, it's like nine years of memories Mm -hmm. that are on if I don't care. So I think I need to care. Also, I think the bottom line too, is like, I can't let them win. It's just like that whole, like, Mm -hmm. fuck you motherfuckers. I will be back in one way or another. So if you want to go follow me on Instagram, even though there's nothing there, it's at, I am Jamie Finch, but Twitter for sure is going to be best place. And if you follow me on Twitter, if I do decide to do anything with Instagram, you'll know because I will always tell Twitter. I dedicated my book to Twitter. I love Twitter so much. So great. One of the best things that has ever happened to human history. So great. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, what's a departing word you have for those who are listening to this podcast? I normally don't do this, but, uh, but with your kind of work, I think it's really important for, for a listener to, to leave with maybe a little nugget, a little golden nugget that, uh, that would be worth, uh, departing, um, from listening. Mm, I love that. I've always have like a, a nugget at the ready in my back pocket. Cause that's oh, what great. I feel like is my, my like life theme. Um, which is that you are not waiting for permission. And I don't even like to clarify what I mean by that as far as permission for what, because I feel like whatever it is that you don't actually need permission for that your body already knows that you maybe just don't know yet that you don't actually need permission. The moment you hear someone else tell you, Hey, you're not waiting for permission for that. You don't need that. Your body will be like, Oh, what we don't. Okay. Here's this thing that we've been waiting for someone Mm. to give us permission to do or believe or know. Um, And suddenly it just, I I just, there was a situation, a podcast I was listening to once actually years ago where the conversation that was occurring was between Pete Holmes and Richard Rohr. um, Two wonderful people. Oh, incredible. Which also I I was like, really, I was like, is he going to ask the Pete Holmes question of like, what was the hardest time you left? (laughs) Which would have been cool because I know now what my answer is. But um, no, the, the conversation they were having, there was something, I something Pete asked Richard and something in the way that Richard replied to it, that it felt like Richard had given me this permission slip because it was like, I think it had to do with some sort of like doctrine or dogma that I, since I was a young child was like, I don't think I believe in that, but I don't think I'm allowed to not believe in that. And then hearing this Franciscan priest who spent his entire life in like believing these types of things say, no, that's, ridiculous you don't have to believe that but I was like I don't oh my god and it's like whole feeling of like I he just Sorry. gave me permission cool. yeah he just gave me permission but in the moment I got the permission I also simultaneously realized I didn't actually need the permission mm. so there was something about this like felt sense of relationship to permission that I feel like if I can leave any human being with anything in fact I'm if I 
when I die, if I have a headstone, I'll put it on there. But like, you're not wait, whatever that thing is, you're not waiting for permission for it. And you especially are not waiting for permission, you know, to kind of tie it all back into the book and the work. You're not waiting for permission to leave something that's harming you and come back home to yourself. You don't need anyone to tell you that's allowed, not allowed. You don't need that external information. Your body has enough information for you and your body knows what you need already. So you don't need permission from anyone else to go ahead and do what you know that you need to do. Mm. From John Piper to Richard Roy. I mean, from one white guy to another old white guy. It's full circle, Jamie. It's full circle. Your life is a full circle. And then we have the other white guys. We have Pete Holmes like peppered in there too. Oh, just, you can't escape them, can you? There's some good white guys out there. (laughs) I did meet Pete a couple weeks ago, actually, at Michael Gunger's book release. And he truly is the kindest person I've ever met. Like, you know, that whole idea of like, kill your heroes because they'll inevitably disappoint Mm -hmm. you. Well, he's been like important, like an important like figure and person to me for a while. And meeting him was the furthest thing from disappointing. He's better in person. He's so wonderful. He's like a truly genuinely wonderful person. And I just want everyone to know that, but he's really great. So there you go, guys. He's really great. Wow. Well, must be nice to be a great person. I wouldn't know about Mm -hmm. that, but it must be nice. Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah, right. Thank you so much, Jamie. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm glad I was able I was able to meet you. And we've been following each other for I don't know, probably a year or so now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been fun to to sort of chit chat through the Twitter. Um, but it's even better to to chat with you in person. And hopefully, at some point, we can cross paths and actually meet in person. that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Jamie and Kayak, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, If Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it. I don't know where
Shade turns agony. 